0: Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. When you get it, say, got it. Got it. All right. We're going to pray, and we're going to jump in. Father God, we come to you this morning, and I thank you for these words, and I pray, God, that you help us to live by what your word says, but dear Lord, help us to understand that, that living for you is more than living by a written law and a written word, dear Lord, that Jesus give us something so much better, something so much more complete, something So much more perfect in these words that we are going to be talking about today, dear Lord, by fulfilling what they say, God. And we thank you for that. And I pray that you help us to not get caught up as being followers of the law, dear Lord, but being followers of Jesus. So I pray that you hide me behind the cross, that you speak through me this morning and to each one of us that's here that we would give you our full attention, that we won't be distracted, but that we would hear what your word has to say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Exodus chapter 20 is where you will find the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are, 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 are something that many people know about. Even non-Christians probably have heard of the Ten Commandments. Most of us have probably watched the old Charlton Heston movie, the Ten Commandments. Now, it's a good movie, and I think it's fairly accurate for the most part, but perhaps some of the things that we, uh, that we have in our mind of how these stories played out isn't exactly what the Scripture says. Sometimes we allow a movie like that to kind of change what we, what we think the story is, and it may not be. Now, I'm not down in the movie. It's a good movie, and I think it's good stuff in there. But we always go to the Bible more than we go to Charlton Heston. At least I hope we do. And so, what you see in the verses before this, in chapter 19, is you had seen Moses going up and down the mountain a lot. Now, you can read that if you had not You can go back and read it later today. Uh, it's a good... good... A verse leading up to this but uh, Moses was going up and down the mountain he would go and talk to God and he would bring a message back to the people and back and forth and back and forth and the instruction was given that uh, the mountain that God was about to uh, come down upon the people were to be on that mountain now only Moses had that privilege of going uh, directly and speaking to God up to this point and they were to build a barrier around the mountain and the people were to go up on the mountain or close to the mountain if somebody did go up on the mountain, they weren't even supposed to touch him. They were supposed to stone, them, just kill them. That was the punishment. So this was real stuff. The people also had to prepare themselves. They had to be clean. Now, he tells them to clean in a physical sense, but there's some, some, some illustration there, some pointing forward to not just a physical cleaning, but a spiritual cleaning. Now, these things are kind of a foreshadowing leading us to Jesus Christ because we too can't go to God. There is a barrier between us and God just as there was a barrier between the Israelites and God. There was separation that had to be there. Why? Because God was perfect and the Israelites were sinners. And so they had to have a mediator to go between the Israelites and God. In their case, that mediator was Moses. But this is pointing us to something better. It's pointing us to a better way. Because while this was the way of the Israelites, as you see in the book of Hebrews, God knew that this was not the best way. There needed to be a better way. There needed to be a new covenant, a better covenant. Because this idea of living by the law could never fully save the people. And so there had to be a mediator. Now this idea of Moses going between man and God is... Pointing us forward to Jesus, who the Scripture says is our mediator. He's the one that breaks down those barriers that allows us to have a relationship with God, where our sinfulness separates us from God. It is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that, once we accept that sacrifice, that that barrier is broken because our sins are washed away. Amen. Amen. That's good. That's good stuff. And so. Moses up down the mountain being the mediator. Moses had gone back down the mountain, we see at the end of chapter 19. And as Moses is at the foot of the mountain with the people, it says that the Lord begins to speak to them. And we see that in verse 25 at the end of chapter 19. So Moses went down to the people and told them what God had said to tell them. And then here in chapter 20, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words. Now think about that for a second. Here the Israelites are about to hear the mighty voice of God. Now, I kind of get chill bumps thinking about that because that's probably a pretty scary thing. Like, it's a cool thing for us to read about, but I believe that there was some fear there, as we see in the Scriptures after these that we'll look at today. There was some fear there among the people, That's naturally there should be, even for us. What would we do if all of a sudden we heard the voice of God speak to us today? Probably crawl under the table because he is the almighty perfect God and I'm the sinner. Now praise God for grace that is Jesus Christ. But boy, I still think that that would be a powerful experience. And it was for the Israelites too. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Now God's reminding them, one, you were enslaved. And two, I brought you out. He is establishing that he is the almighty God, that he is the one who has had power over the great Egypt that was the powerhouse of the day, and the almighty God has, has laid to ruin, essentially, the Egyptian empire, freeing the Israelite people from being enslaved. Now again, there's a foreshadowing here. These things happen to the Israelites, but they're pointing us to Jesus. That is that we have freedom. We are enslaved to our sin. We cannot escape it. But through Jesus Christ, he frees us. On the one side of the Red Sea, the Israelites were still enslaved because the Egyptians were still coming after them. But once they crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptians that were chasing them were killed, they stood in freedom on the other side. And that's what Jesus does for us. He takes us from our sinfulness crosses us uh, over. He's the bridge we could save between us and our sinfulness and God. He, he brings us from the slavery of our sin through forgiveness by his death on the cross into freedom of the Lord. And God is reminding the people here, don't forget where you came from and don't forget who I am. And then he goes on to tell them what we are familiar with this calling, the Ten Commandments. Now, these were not the only laws of the Old Testament. There were 600 and something more of these laws that God gave the people. And you see that all in the next books of the Bible coming after this. Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They all cover these events that are about to happen in the next few chapters or in these chapters in Exodus that we're looking at. And there's much detail about how they're supposed to handle certain situations. But in the Ten Commandments, God sums up a couple of things that are pivotal that are going to keep the people on track. Now, you could split these commandments up into two different groups. The first five have to do with our relationship with God. And the second five have to do with our relationship with people. You could think of them as vertical and horizontal, up and down. The first five have to do with us down here and God up there. And the next five are horizontal. They have to do with us and everybody that's (laughs) level to us, our brothers and sisters, our neighbors that we see all around. And so they're split into a couple of different categories. Not here in the text, but it may be helpful for us as we're studying them to kind of think of them in those terms. Now, God says in verse 3, Do not have other gods besides me. Now, this is crucial. This is critical to the Israelite people. Why? Because the people that the Israelites had encountered in Egypt, who worshipped many gods, the people that they would encounter as they prepared to go into the promised land, they worshipped multiple gods. Not that there were multiple gods, but they were worshipping false gods. Now, God is telling the Israelites here, don't worship any God besides me. There is no other God beside me. Now, God was saying this for the protection of the people. He didn't want them praying to and seeking gods that cannot hear, that cannot do anything for them, that do not listen to them, that do not see them. God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the only God here, uh, hopefully they're reminded that He has seen them in their difficult times. He's provided water for them and food for them and delivered them from their enemy. He is a God who cares, and therefore they are not to have any other God beside Him. Verse 4, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I... The Lord your God am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin. So third to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. The next one uh, is do not make an idol. Don't worship another God and don't make an idol uh, for another God. Uh, Now, when we talk about idols here in the context of what was going on, they were probably talking about real physical idols that were being made, perhaps statues that were carved from stone, perhaps things that were carved from wood, uh, statues that were made from metals melting down. You may uh, remember, if you've read further on in Exodus already in your life, that the Israelites made a golden calf. They took their jewelry and they made an idol. This was after God had already given them these instructions right here. It it ain't long after this that they make an idol and begin to worship it. They already are doing exactly what God said not to do. Now, idol worship still takes place in our world today. It still took place after this event. You may recall, if you've ever read in the book of Acts... That There was a time that the Christians were going in and preaching the gospel and the blacksmiths and the people that made these idols, they began to complain because Christianity was hurting their business. Because as the Christians came in and preached Christ crucified, people weren't wanting to buy these idols anymore and so these people that made them, it was bad for their business. And we see people who worship idols still in our world today. Certain religions and certain people may bow to certain statues. And this is exactly what God says not to do. Now, I don't know what anybody does here when they leave in their spare time. But I would hope that you're not bowing down to a man-made statue. To an idol, to, a, to something that is made by human hands. Now, this is a serious thing because there are no doubt people in Amet County that are probably worshiping real idols that are made by human hands. Now, this is a problem. God tells us not to do this. Why? Because they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear and they can't do anything for us. What is an idol? What kind of God do you want to serve? One that you created or one that created you? I don't know about you guys. I don't want to worship a God and bow down to a God that I carved out of wood or stone. That's just ignorant. I want to worship a God and serve a God who has created me and made the millions of cells in my body and breathed life into my lungs. That's the God that I want to worship and serve, not a God that I create. That's a puny God if it's a God I make because I'm just a sinner. I want a perfect God who makes me. Therefore, we don't worship idols as Christians, or we shouldn't if you do. Then you need to come see me after service and we'll have a discussion because we need not worship idols. Now, probably our problem, again, I don't know anybody's situation, but probably our issue is not that we bow down and worship uh, things carved with human hands. But we may, however, have idols in our life, things that we worship. You say, oh, well, I don't worship anything. Well, maybe we do. We may not bow down with our knee to the ground and, uh, and, 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 and do this number. But do we worship things of this world, like our money, for instance? So say, oh, I don't, I don't worship money. Well, what do you devote your attention to? What do you devote your time to? What do you think about all the time? Perhaps that is your idol. Even if you're not bending a knee to it, it still may be an idol in your life. And I think it's easy for us and we need to be careful when we talk about these Ten Commandments is to say, "Well, I'm not worshiping any statues. This one doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. Be careful. There are plenty of things that we can make idols of in our life and we don't want to be caught doing that. Whether we bend the knee or not in our heart, we can make other things idols above God and begin to give them our attention and our worship, so to speak. And we need to be careful not to do that. He goes on to give a little punishment in this one. He gives a little uh, word of warning here. He says that he is a jealous God uh, punishing the children for the father's sins to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, this is a good reminder here that our sinfulness brings consequences not only to us, but perhaps others around us, perhaps for generations to come. Now, we may look at that verse and say, well, that's pretty harsh that God would punish other people for, for something someone else did, well, maybe it is harsh, but that's the, what sin does. That's what sin is. It messes up God's perfect plan. And we need to remember that there are consequences for our sins. And we do see that punishment here, and it's a real thing. But on the flip side of that, listen to what he says after this. But showing faithful love to a thousand generations, to a thousand generations, Three or four generations are going to experience the punishment, but a thousand generations are going to experience God's love if they love Him and are obedient to Him. That tells me that God desires to love us and bless us much more than He desires to punish us. Now that decision is ours, that choice is ours as to whether or not we are going to receive God's blessing or we are going to receive God's punishment. I don't think that God says these words because He wants to punish people. But He's saying, if you choose to reject me, punishment is going to be the result. But if you choose to be obedient to me, then you will experience a love that you can't imagine for a thousand generations. That's a lot of love, people. Let's read a little further. Verse 7. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses His name. Or some translations don't use the Lord's name in vain. Now, oftentimes, we we need to be careful about this one too, like the other one we talked about, of idols. We may say, well, using God's name in vain means that we are using a curse word in which God's name is tied to that. Well, yes, that is one way to use God's name in vain. And we may say, well, I don't do that. I don't ever say a curse word that I tie God's name to. Therefore, I'm not using God's name in vain. But I believe the idea of using God's name in vain is much deeper than that. It's much greater than that. I think any time that we use God's name or talk about the Lord in uh disingenuously, uh, then we are using the Lord's name in vain. For instance, let's say somebody tells you something and maybe you get in the habit of saying, praise the Lord. But you really don't want to offer up any praise to the Lord. You just are used to hearing that as a Christian and hearing other people say it. And therefore, it just becomes part of your vocabulary. And you say those words, but you don't really mean it. And I believe that that is one way that we may use the Lord's name in vain. When we say praise the Lord or glory be to God, we need to mean that. We don't just want to say that because those are the cool Christian terms. And when people hear us say God bless, are we really caring if God blesses someone? Well, hopefully we are. But I think it may be easy for us to get in the habit of repeating phrases and maybe not they not come from the heart if you don't really want to bless somebody or want God to bless them well then don't say God bless or don't say praise the Lord if you really are all the while thinking boy I did that somebody says oh uh, you know that was good he said oh praise the Lord but all the while inside you're saying yeah I'm so good well I believe that's one example of using the Lord's name in vain we need to be careful not just with our curse words but also the heart in which we say maybe good phrases and terms like praise the Lord or glory to God or a host of others. We don't want to do that. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son, or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the foreigner who is within your gates. Now, this is an interesting. Anytime we talk about the Ten Commandments, there is a discussion that must come up. And there are Christians that fall on both sides of the Ten Commandments. That is, do we still live under the Ten Commandments? Do we still live under the law? Now, as I'm teaching the Ten Commandments, it's important that you know where I fall on this, and you may disagree. But I believe that we are free from the law. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, the law will not pass away because we are still judged by the law. But the difference being that those who are in Christ Jesus are judged based on what Jesus has done. Those who are not in Christ Jesus, when they are judged by the law, they will be found guilty because why? They can't fulfill the law. Now, when it comes to something like Sabbath keeping, the question is, well, are Christians today supposed to keep the Sabbath? Well, I believe, no, we are not supposed to keep the Sabbath. Now, I know many Christians who would say, Oh, I do, I keep the Sabbath, I don't do any work ever on Sunday. Well, you don't keep the Sabbath, because the Sabbath started at about 3 o'clock on Friday and went until about 3 o'clock on Saturday. That's always been the Sabbath, and it still is the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the last day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. The reason why we as Christians meet on the first day of the week is Is because that's when Christians in the early church met. They met on the first day of the week. Why? Because that is the day that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And so what we do when we go to church on Sunday is totally different from what the Israelites did and what they were commanded to do. Now, that idea of having a day of rest or setting aside a day that we uh, don't do anything, I think is a fine idea. I think it's a good idea. Obviously, it's a command from the Lord. It's got to be a good idea. But we need to be careful when we say, well, I live by the law and I keep the Sabbath. Now, I do know that there are plenty of people in this world that still do actually keep the Sabbath. At sundown on Friday, they stop, and they don't do anything till sundown on Saturday. There are religious groups and religions that still practice Sabbath keeping. But we need to be careful when we are talking about the law. Do we fulfill the law? The reason is, is because trying to fulfill and live by the law brings a burden. It brings a burden to us that has already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now you can read about this in great detail in Romans. You can read about it in Galatians in great detail how Jesus Christ has freed us from the law. We are not under the law, but we are under grace as Romans chapter uh, six. I don't remember the verse number says. I can look it up for you later. But when we begin to talk about things of the law, we don't want to burden ourselves with something that Jesus has freed us from. I'll give you an example. I remember once, this is several months back, maybe a few years back actually, I saw this lady one Sunday afternoon, and I said, Hey, how you doing? How's your day been? And there was a look of, of fear on her face. Of genuine fear, of genuine concern. And she said, "Ah, we're going out of town tomorrow, and I packed a bag today, and I hope the Lord will forgive me for doing that. Now, there was a genuine fear and concern there because she had worked on a Sunday. Now In one way, that is a beautiful thing because fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we all feared the Lord that much in God's Word, even if it's a misunderstanding of God's Word, that would greatly change the things we did, the attitude we had, and the way that we acted. And when she told me that, there was a part of me that said, boy, that's a beautiful thing that she fears the Lord in that way. But it was also kind of sad to me that she was... She was concerned that she had broken the law, one, because she had worked on Sunday, which isn't the Sabbath, and two, that Jesus had freed her from that burden. And so we need to be careful. Now, another thing that we talk about when we talk about fulfilling the law, and again, there may be some with a differing view here than me, and you may very, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, praise the Lord, and it's okay for us to differ and still love each other. But here's the biggest argument for me whenever we say, I'm still living under the law. Well, if we are going to live by the law, then we have to live by the law. That is, do everything it says. For me, I can't pick and choose a few of the Ten Commandments and say, I'm going to live under the law in this way, but not the other way. If I'm going to live by ten, I'm going to live by the other six hundred too. Which is the problem. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. They always missed it. That's why Jesus was such a thorn in their flesh because He was telling them that they were wrong because they were misinterpreting, adding to the law, adding burden to the people uh, that that, that they themselves were not carrying. Jesus calls them out for that in Matthew 23. Read that chapter. It's some good stuff. He says that they place heavy loads on the people that they themselves aren't willing to lift. That's because they were living by a law that Jesus was about to free them from. Now, at that point, they hadn't been freed because Jesus hadn't died and been resurrected. But he was trying to prepare them not to miss the point. If we're going to live by the law, then we have to live by the law. So what do we do for those who break the Sabbath? Which would be me because I didn't keep the Sabbath this last week. I, I was out working on flower beds and working at the house last Saturday. I didn't keep the Sabbath. So what is the punishment for those who break God's law in that way? Numbers chapter 15 verse 32 tells us it says while the israelites were in the wilderness they found a man gathering wood on the sabbath day those who found him gathering wood brought him to moses aaron and the entire community they placed him in custody because it had not been decided what should be done to him then the lord told moses that the man is to be put to death The entire community is to stone him outside the camp. So the entire community brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what is the penalty for breaking the law and breaking the Sabbath? You are supposed to be stoned to death. Now please don't get out of this building and find a stone and stone somebody. Please do not do that. Here's the problem. If you're going to say, I still live by the law, then live by the law. Or no, don't live by the law, because then you'd kill people. But look, understand the difficulty when we look at these things and we say, well, should we keep these things or should we not keep these things? And so there's difficulty there. When it comes to the Sabbath, this was a command to the Israelites. And while we may celebrate it in some form by setting aside a day to worship the Lord, we don't do it in the same way and we don't follow the same rules that the Israelites did. I believe that we are in Christ Jesus and we can worship the Lord any day of the week. We can have church on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday or Sunday because we are free to worship the Lord. But don't let your freedom be a stumbling block to you or anybody else because you may say, I'm free, I don't have to ever worship the Lord, I don't have to go to church. Well, that's true, but guess what happens if you stop going to church and stop gathering with believers? Eventually, your relationship with God is going to go downhill. So there's benefit for us coming together on a regular basis, whether it's twice a month, every Sunday, once a month, whatever it may be. Different churches have different schedules, and all that's well and good. As long as we're setting aside a time that we are going to worship the Lord. Let's read a little further, verse 11. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now this is a good one. Again, your interpretation of this verse probably determines at what point in life you are in When I was a kid and read this verse, I always interpreted it as, well, if my parents tell me to clean my room, I better do it, because I'm honoring and respecting what my parents say. Now, I believe that that is true. But I believe there is more to honoring and respecting your parents than cleaning your room. The problem with that interpretation that I had as a child is that once I get to be 18 or 20 and I'm gone, I'm freed from that. I don't have to worry about that anymore because I'm in my own place. Now... To an extent, that is true. But just because you're 25 years old and living on your own, no, you may not listen to everything your parents say. Does it mean if your parents say, you have to move to this place and build a house this size with this many rooms? Well, that's not exactly, I don't think, what the word is talking about. You make your own decisions once you become an adult, but you still need to honor and respect your parents. You can still honor and respect what, what, what you do, how you act around them, how you treat them. And now this idea of honoring our parents changed in my life because now my parents are getting older. And in the next 10 or 20 years, as their health declines, as it will if they make it that long, I will have to determine how I'm going to take care of them. Well, how do we take care of our parents? Do we show them honor when they are when they are old and hard-headed and stubborn and won't listen to nothing and won't give up the keys. Well, how do you treat your parents with honor in that way? Well, some would, would say, now this is where the parents may use this verse again, well, you got to honor me, you got to do what I say. You, but but listen, now listen, if you if you hold that argument... If your heart is being selfish and only worried about you and not worried about inconveniencing your kids who have to work long hours, and you don't care about that as long as they come and take care of you and take you where you want to go, as long as you don't have to go to a nursing home or do what you don't want to do, uh, you can use that over them, but I believe that that's being a little selfish and inconsiderate just to get your needs. Now, I do believe, though, it's up to us to honor and respect our parents in those old age days when they need to be taken care of it doesn't mean by putting our parents in a home or somewhere that we are disrespecting them or bringing dishonor to them but we need to be careful as to how we treat them many times as parents get older they are hard-headed they won't turn up the keys they won't do anything that's right they don't take their medicine right and therefore it causes an argument between the kids and the person and it causes a big to do now, I want to give you guys a word of, of advice here if you're older. Don't do that to your kids. Understand that as we get older, and I will be too, Lord willing, if I live long enough, I will have to go to places that I don't want to go. I will have to do things I won't want to do. I will have to give up my keys. All of these things happen to us. But we also have to realize that our children have lives, they have jobs, they have families and in some ways it's unfair to them now some children may choose to take care of their parents in a different way other children may wrongly throw their parents away and never take care of them but there's a balance there that can be had in which a child can take care of a parent and the right respect can be given and honor can be given by both and we need to make sure that if we're younger children that we listen to our mothers when they tell us to do things, and fathers. And as we become older children, that we still try to take care of our parents in the best way we can while still honoring them. But, but parents, don't make it too hard on your kids. I've seen it too many times that it really affects relationships and people kill themselves trying to take care of their parents. But try to find a, a happy medium. That's totally unrelated to this, but I think it's good advice. All right, verse 13. Verse 13. Do not murder. This is a simple one. This is an easy one, right? This one doesn't require much explanation. Now, some translations will say, thou shalt not kill. But there is a difference between killing and murder. Say, for instance, you're driving down the road, and you have a blowout on your car, and it veers into another lane, and you hit somebody, and it kills them. Well, that's different than murdering someone. When you talk about murdering someone, that means it's it, it, you've got ill intent. You're intending to go and murder them. It's it, it, it's 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 already in your heart. You go and you want to take their life. You desire to take their life. So there's a difference between killing and murdering here. Now there are times that even the Israelites are to kill. We just read one of them when God said, "Kill this man for breaking the Sabbath." Now that's different than murder. They weren't. Killing him just because they had anger and malice in their heart. They were doing what had to be done. The same is true for war. We see the Israelites go to war. We see our men and women today go to war. And they have to sometimes kill the enemy. That's different than murder. Uh, now, Jesus expounds on this in the New Testament in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount when he explains what murder is because he clarifies some of these Ten Commandments. See, he tells us the heart of what they mean because he would say things like, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, don't even be angry with somebody in your heart because Jesus said you've already sinned. It's like already committing murder. If you're guilty of one sin, you're guilty of all. You are therefore a, a sinner. Well, not guilty of all, but you're guilty of sin, so you're a sinner. And so when we see the word murder here, it's probably a better translation of translations that say the word kill. We don't ever want to take someone's life. Verse 14, do not commit adultery. Marriage is a sacred union that God has established. We see it with Adam and Eve on forward. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Not one woman and one woman, or one man and another man. Marriage is to be between man and woman. It is supposed to be forever. It's not something that is to be taken lightly. It is not something that we can say, well, I'm going to be married to this person and they're mean to me, so therefore I'm going to leave them. That is not grounds for divorce in the Scripture. Now that's tough. I understand that's tough. As you see women who are being abused or perhaps even men who are being abused, the only grounds we see for divorce in Scripture is sexual immorality if the spouse commits adultery. We see that marriage is important to God, and He gives this command in the Ten Commandments to not commit adultery. If you're married, don't cheat on your spouse. Verse 15, do not steal. This one's pretty simple. If somebody has something you want, oh well, don't steal it. You can't take what somebody else has just because you want it. Verse 16, do not bear, or excuse me, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Anybody you encounter, Jesus tells us that. Jesus explains that in the New Testament. Who's our neighbor? Not just the one that's the next house down, but all of you are my neighbors. Everybody I see is my neighbor. Therefore, don't bear false witness against them. Don't lie about them. Don't say something that they said or did that's not true. Don't don't talk down about your neighbor or tell a lie that they said or that you are saying about them. Don't give false testimony about your neighbor. In verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So don't don't desire with all your heart to have something that somebody else has. Don't dwell on what somebody else has. Now, we need to be careful on this one because we may say, well, I can want something like what somebody else has and I'm not coveting. If I'm not coveting the exact thing that they have, therefore, I'm not coveting. For instance, someone may be very wealthy and they've got a vault full of $100 bills at their house. You say, boy, I, I wish I had that. Not those exact $100 bills. I want a vault full of different $100 bills. Therefore, I'm not coveting. Hey, you've missed the point. You're coveting what they have, that is their wealth, not the exact serial number on the $100 bill. And if you've got $100 bills with different serial numbers, somehow you're free from the idea that you've coveted. That's not the case at all. So we need to be careful when we say, well, I don't covet his exact vehicle or his exact house or his exact bank account, therefore I'm not coveting. Coveting comes from a desire to have what other people have. Maybe not the exact thing, but something or or, or just the idea of what they have, that you want to be wealthy too or have a nice home too or whatever it may be. And we need to be careful not to give in to those things. But it's hard for me to talk about these verses of, of, of the Ten Commandments without turning to Matthew chapter 22. If you want to turn there, you may. Matthew 22. Verse 34, Matthew 22:34. Jesus was constantly confronted with uh, people who were trying to trap Him or trick Him or to uh, get Him to say something. But Jesus uh, came with the intent of not to not to better explain the law by the letter. Jesus came to tell the people that they needed to change their heart. He came to tell them and explain to them what the law, what the Ten Commandments actually meant. What the heart behind them actually was. Not the following the law by the letter, but the understanding the heart that God desired for the people to have. Matthew 22, verse 34, Jesus tells us, uh, or, or we see uh, here where Jesus tells us what the most important commandments are. So we've just looked at 10. So which one is the most important? Well, let's see. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, Asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? All right, so there's 10 of them we just looked at. More than likely, this person, this expert in the law who was coming to him, was probably referring to the Ten Commandments, although he could have been referring to the law as a whole, all 600 and something of them. And Jesus responded in verse 37. He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now Jesus sums it up right there. He summed up the whole law of the Old Testament in two commands. Remember when we first started talking, I said we can look at these in two ways. The first few have to do with our relationship with God, and the last few have to do with our relationship with others. That idea didn't just come from my brain. It came from Jesus Christ. When they asked Him what was the most important, He said, love God with everything you got, all that's in you, and love other people like you love yourself. And if we do those two things, we will fulfill the Ten Commandments. We will fulfill what the law requires. And we need to remember these words that Jesus tells us. Are we loving God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength? Are we loving our neighbors as ourselves? We would never bring harm to ourselves, would we? We would never do anything that would be bad for us. So do we do that about other people? Do we talk down about ourselves to other people about how bad we are? Do we talk down about other people about how bad they are? The things that you do to other people and about other people, do you do them to yourself? Well, hopefully we don't. And we need to be reminded of that next time we want to do something that is not right to someone else. We need to keep God above everything. We don't want to give in to idols. We don't want to worship things that are not going to bring us any satisfaction, that aren't going to be able to deliver us. We want to focus on God with all of our heart, with everything that we have And I don't know what everybody's heart is, if you're doing that or not. But Jesus Christ has given us grace by his death on the cross. Because all of these things that the law commanded, we cannot fulfill. Probably everybody in here has told a lie at some point in time in their life. We probably all have stolen something in our life. And the list could go on and on and on. We've probably all at some point made an idol of something in our life. And we can never fulfill God's law and what it requires. But Jesus Christ did. By giving His life on the cross, by dying for us, He fulfilled everything that the law required. Read Hebrews. It's all in there. Good explanation. Jesus has freed us from the burden of having to live by the law. We live under grace. Does that mean that we go out and sin all the more? Absolutely not, as Paul would say in Romans. We live under grace, therefore we give grace to others. It's the grace that we receive that that keeps us in check, that keeps us focused on God, (coughs) that keeps us from doing things that would harm and take advantage of other people. And so we live under the grace and the freedom of Jesus Christ that He gives us. We preach Christ and Christ crucified because that is where our grace and forgiveness comes from. Some would say, well, we need to keep the Ten Commandments in the courtrooms or we get upset when we take the Ten Commandments down. Well, I think we need to take the Ten Commandments down and replace them with the cross of Jesus Christ and Christ crucified because that is what we live by. That is the grace that we are freed from our sinfulness in. We don't live by the law. We live under grace that comes only through Jesus Christ. If you're still living by the law, I've got bad news for you. When you stand before God, you are going to be judged by it. But if you're living under Jesus Christ, you'll be judged under His perfect sacrifice. And He is perfect because He fulfilled the law to the fullest. If you've never chosen Him and accepted Him as your Lord and Savior, today you need to do it. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You and we thank You for these words today. And I pray that You would help us not to be legalistic, God. That is, living by the letter of the law and thinking that just because we come to church on Sundays and just because we do this, that, and the other, that somehow we are forgiven. God, we're not forgiven by what we do. We're forgiven by what Jesus has done. So God, if there's one in this room that's never accepted Jesus Christ, that today that they would do that, that they would repent, that they'd stop sinning, stop doing those things that are wrong, dear Lord, and would ask Jesus to forgive them, to come in their heart, to be their Lord and Savior, dear Lord. I pray that that you just help us not not to fall into that burden of the law, dear Lord, but to live in grace. But not to sin because of that, dear Lord. Not to, not, to, not to get a wrong idea, dear Lord. Not to misunderstand what grace is. Grace is not a, it's not a ticket to do whatever we want to do, dear Lord. It's a, it's a blessing and a privilege for us to serve and to love others and give them grace and mercy. So God, I thank you for the freedom that you give us, dear Lord Jesus. I thank you for your grace and for your love for dying on the cross for us. And I pray that you would help us to fulfill what your law requires in love. That we love you first, God, and we love others the way we should. And when we do that, dear Lord, the Ten Commandments and every other command you give us is fulfilled. So help us to be those that, that, uh, that love like Jesus did. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.